out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastorm. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of um, American singer-songwriter Holly Palmer, who I uh, spoke to a few weeks, months ago, to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, um, one of the first people, or the reason, I suppose, uh, she came onto my radar was that she'd worked with David Bowie and played at Glastonbury in 2000 on the Pyramid stage on a Sunday evening, 10 o'clock. I was there. It was magical. Anyway, curiosity killed the cat, so to speak. So um, I managed to track down Holly to uh, find out more about her musical journey and life. As well as working with Bowie, she's also worked with people like Michael Bublé, Dr. Dre, Billy Preston, Paula Cole, and many, many more. And she's got a phenomenal solo um, career as well, releasing a lot of albums. Anyway, this is the interview. Yeah, just for your attention or your notes here, um, it's done slightly in two parts. It's done in two parts. We had the interview, and then a few days later, she sort of got in touch and said, oh, there's other parts of this story that um, might be good to tell. So I said, fine, let's get another date. So um, you'll notice it does slightly change, but not a lot. Uh, but anyway, it's, uh, it's everything you need to know about Holly Palmer and much, much more is in this interview. So any, anyway, enjoy. So we have the casual chat. Then we talk about those early musical years and influences. And this was Holly's response. Holly, it's over to you. Sure. I, um, I was always singing around the house, you know, when I was a kid. My dad, you know, played the, played the guitar and sang, you know, Stones and Beatles and Neil Young around the house. And I was always singing. And when I went to school, I played the flute in the band. I never really took to that. So when I saw the jazz band, um, when I was in, I think, ninth grade, I saw jazz or maybe eighth grade anyway. Um, that's like 13. Maybe I saw these two twins. Actually, they were identical twins. One played the vibraphone, one played the trumpet, but they both got in front of the school jazz band. There was a big band and they both sang with the band. And I was just like really taken with this. So I went to the teacher and I said, I, how, can I sing in front of the band? <laughs> and he said, you can, but not if you play the flute. There's no flutes in the jazz band, so you have to play another one of these instruments. You can pick a horn or be in the rhythm section. And, you know, I didn't really – I just wanted to get in there, so I didn't really care what instrument it was. And so I said, what do you have? What do you got, you know? And he said, I, I have a saxophone. You could try a saxophone. I said, okay. So um, me and this other girl sat during the wind ensemble practice. We got a book, and the two of us sat and honked our way – through the book and I got a place in the jazz band the next year. And that was really formative for me because we, we made records, you know, he was a really excellent teacher and we would perform at festivals and we did a lot of things kind of from a young age, including recording. Um, so I think I was first in the studio and I was maybe 15 or something. Right. Yeah. And, uh, he would have, um, and then when I was in high school, he actually moved from the junior high to the high school. So I switched so I could go to that high school. And then he hired a college student to transcribe um, some big band arrangements for me of like Nancy Wilson, these Billy May arrangements that were incredible. And those I recorded and would sing at festivals. And I, at that time, I actually made friends with the guy 
who's a lifelong friend of mine. His name is Kung Vu, and he actually has won two Grammys as a he's a trumpet player, um, and he was with the Pat Metheny group for a while. And so he and I started this friendship, and we get together and listen to music. And I was really into jazz at that time. Yes. And then when it came time for college, um, I didn't. I got a. I, I went to a nearby school that had like a vocal jazz program, you know, that whole like pitch perfect type music mm. that's so popular now. And uh, there's great arranger was there. So I went to school there and it, it wasn't really a fit for me. And my friend Kung had gone to Boston and he was going to the New England Conservatory of Music and he we'd write letters, you know, <laughs> actual letters with stamps and mail them. <laughs> and he said, you should come to Boston. There's so many bands here. You could be singing all the time. And my mother worked for the airline, and so I said, "Hey, I want to go see my friend Kung." And she, my parents were kind of into the. I, I don't really know. They music was never. My dad sort of played, but they weren't really involved in my musical world. They kind of, you know, sometimes parents have their own sort of concerns. And I, I had this band teacher, and he sort of, kind of, fed me with new music and singers and things. And so she didn't really, she said, yeah, you can fly standby. And so I flew over there. I stayed with him for a weekend and I thought, oh, right, I need to come here. So I went to the Berkeley School of Music, which was right down the street. And I roomed with my friend Kung and another trumpet player. And that was it. I was, you know, singing with everybody I could in different languages and started writing songs a few years later and just really was a great time. Yes. I mean, were you something of a of a... Child protege on on the music front. You sounded like it was kind of you know you, you went up very quickly. You know, like the doors kind of opened very smoothly. I I don't know if I was a protege as much as I was just very very excited about it, very interested, and didn't have any fear about it. I suppose I just I didn't I I mean I was a shy I was actually a really shy person. <laughs> But I really wanted to sing, and that was it. So whatever the direct route was for me to be singing, I didn't have any any hesitation on that, you know. Um, I wasn't really – like, it's funny, at Berkeley at the time, it was a great place to be because there was just so many different musicians. Um, I wasn't a great student, and I wasn't – you know, um, I didn't get picked for the shows. You know, they'd have, like, these singer shows – but other musicians would have me sing in their shows and I would always be creating my own recitals and my own shows. So I was kind of a self-starter and I loved, I just loved being around other musicians. And I think that is what, you know, created the kind of bedrock on which my whole musical life was built. You know, all the great singing opportunities that I've gotten, you know, David or Steele or just different people wonderful artists that I've gotten to work with have come from other musicians and some that I knew back then. Yes. And were, you, and were you, I mean, I, I'm sort of, yes, I was born in the mid-60s, so you're, you're um, quite a bit younger. But were you sort of also kind of looking at what was happening in the kind of charts in the sort of the 80s period and thinking, oh, that's interesting, or, you know, the, the sort of changes, sort of that musical world that was quite the mainstream pop world of the 80s and then, I suppose you had a bit of the grunge scene and then Britpop, you know, in a sort of, I mean, coming from the UK, I mean, that was kind of, you know, what we were sort of listening to. So I just wonder if you were sort of listening to much of that music yourself or whether you were just kind of much more into, because you were 
you were hanging out with sort of serious musicians and, and producers at that stage. Mm. So I was wondering mm -hmm. if you were sort of a, a, a much of a pop kid, sort of wanting to hear what the what was in the charts. You know, I, I listened to the radio a ton and FM radio was so great in the 80s. You know, that's what David, you know, when I met David, I only knew the radio music, which was like Modern Love, uh, uh, China Girl, Let's Dance, Dance yes. like that. So, I mean, that is some of the greatest, but there's it's all the greatest with him, you know. But then you'd have that and then you'd have, um, you know, like um, Blondie or... Um, or later Prince, or like, I listened to Top 40 Radio a lot, and it was great because it was eclectic. But I also, what I was singing was jazz. Yes. Um, and then there was also, there was also my dad started going to the library and he would bring home vinyl and he brought home Ricky Lee Jones records. And I just flipped for Ricky Lee Jones, her album called Pirates, that was like just a mind blower for me. And then come to find out, come to realize that Ricky Lee Jones had studied or let's just say influenced by um, Billie Holiday in a major way. So I, as I realized how some of the artists that I love connected to some of the music that I was playing and singing, um, I just was interested in all of it. You know, um, I didn't really pay attention. You know, the, when I was in college, I didn't really pay attention necessarily to the charts. I, I just kind of went into making music and kind of weird, like sort of avant-garde sometimes because Kung was really into new music and I liked singing with him because I just like making music with him, but I don't, I didn't really, um, anyway, so I, I kind of, I would just be attracted to different music and go try it. But I, I wasn't, I, I wasn't super aware of what was going on in, in the charts. Yes. You know. And then 76, no, not 76, 96, 76, yeah. you, you'd have been five. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> you, you made your first album, which is an amazing leap, isn't it? Produced by Kenny, Kenny White. I mean, that, mm -hmm. that must have felt like an incredibly exciting project and, and oh, sort of my experience. God. I mean, did that, I mean, bringing that album together, did that take very long? Did you, do you know Kenny? Do you know no, his work? No, I don't. Yeah, he's great. Um, yeah, you should check out his records too. He's, he's continues to make great, great records. Um, yes, 100%. What, so I moved to New York in 90, I think four in the fall of 94. And I had started writing songs a couple of, like really writing songs. I had like a demo deal of Island Records a couple of years before, like 92. And at that time, I, my grandmother lived in Los Angeles. And so I would get those standby tickets from my mom. And I became friendly with one of the publishers of one of the co-writers that Island set me up with. That's actually when I met Reeves Gabrels, by the way, oh, I did that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And they, that, and I, and I wrote with Reeves and I wrote with a few other people. And so then I'd go stay with my grandma and I'd go write with different writers in Los Angeles. I just started writing and that then I sort of took a turn sort of back more to kind of pop music in a way but it was my kind of like I really liked soul coughing if you know that band yeah was super yeah I, I sort of aspire I wanted to be like a girl soul coughing that was my thing um which is fun because actually Sebastian the bass player and I have played together and and our friends and he's have you heard what he did with Fiona on Fiona Apple's record what the new one 
Yeah. Yes. It's inc- incredible. Uh, yeah. I mean, he produced it with her and I think, um, or I don't, I don't, don't quote me on this, but he worked, um, he was one of the team making that record. It's incredible. I know it's been, it's been but, heavily played. Yeah. But anyway, so he, so that band was like a big one for me. And, um, anyway, um, so what happened then? So I was writing with those writers and then I feel like I was going somewhere, but now I lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it was the first, that was oh, the your... exciting project. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. So then I started writing, 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 and I was new to, to writing. I really was singing, 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 started writing in kind of like 91, 92, did the demo deal, and then really kind of got into the writing. And then I moved to New York and I put a band together. And um, I think I did the deal like the next, like, Within a year, I had met Sue Drew, who signed me to Reprise Records, who's still a dear friend of mine. And yeah, it was it was super exciting and dream come true, you know. Yes, absolutely. So at that stage, was your mind very much set on on sort of being a solo <clears throat> artist, you know, sort of and plowing that furrow? <clears throat> I mean, I think I always thought I'd have a band and I had bands when I was at Berkeley. I love I love the, you know, the brotherhood, sisterhood of being in a band. Um, but then I feel like I was discovering songwriting and discovering, you know, looking, sort of searching for my voice as a writer. And by, I guess by virtue of that, it keeps you sort of solitary in terms of, um, I don't know, shepherding uh, your sensibility into into songs, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Because, yes, and then you, you sort of... I mean, you seem to attract incredibly good producers because then you work with Howie B on your the second album or your intended mm. second album, which again was in London. So that must have felt like, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of amazed in one level, you know, just like, because I know quite a lot of people who've really wanted to get into music and it's just never happened. Whereas you're sort of, you seem to sort of get get sort of, from one step to the next step, really kind of, it feels, it sounds quite seamless, but it probably is quite a lot of hard work and a lot of emotional yeah. ups and downs. But <laughs> but you do seem to sort of like, oh, yes, and I then worked in, and went to London and worked with this person. And, you know. Well, <laughs> I mean, I'll say this. I was, I've always been pretty single-minded about it. Um, it was funny. I teach, I teach voice. I have one student right now. I, I, I'd like to do more cause I really enjoy it. But I was saying to my student yesterday, like, you know, it's not easy. Like singing is, is actually, cause I'm, t- if you're actually learning vocal technique, there's many different types of singing, of course. And some singing is very conversational and is, is, is very natural. Uh, but, but some singing, uh, let's say if we're moving over to like to the other end of the spectrum with classical voice, it takes a lot of thought and a lot of focus. And if you're developing your technique for, let's say, you know, pop singing or R&B singing or whatever it is, if you really want to have access to all that your voice has to offer you, there is, it, it is, it is, it requires some focus. It requires some focus and some awareness of what's happening in your body. And so I was saying to my student, it's not easy what you're trying to do. You're trying what what you're working on requires sort of constant vigilance, but it needs to look easy. <laughs> we can't be aware <laughs> of all the things you're thinking about, but it needs to look easy. So, I, it, and I, it may it may seem that it was sort of seamless, and it and may perhaps it was seamless, but 
it was a lot of work and just a lot of a lot of interest and a lot of excitement and a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of energy, you know, we get energy from things that we love. Like when you have a kid or when you have a cat or you know what I mean? Like when there's someone or something that you love that begets a reservoir of energy with which to care for that. And so I think that I've always worked really hard and there are many, um, there are many things that like, like everyone that I, um, think hmm, maybe, I, maybe I would have done that a little bit differently if I knew then what I know now. But one thing that I do know is I always um, I always worked hard. Yes, well, you must you must have been because then because then you sort of work on well not on the album but you work on the track Thursday's Child, which is on the on David's album um, Hours. So how did you get the sort of call for that kind of particular number? <laughs> good story so I had been working um with Howie and his team in London and I finished my record and the record company was like oh this is interesting you know they would sort of leave me alone to make my record they would let me just kind of do the thing and then um many months would pass and I'd deliver the record and they kind of wouldn't get it and so they were saying, well, I think you need more singles and you need more singles. And it's like, oh, okay. So I was trying to sort of cooperate in that way and take those opportunities to make it a better record. But it wasn't, um, at that point, I, I suppose it would be fair to say things were bogged down a little bit in what was going to happen with my record. Um, and I was, I would always do gigs in New York. I have so, I have so many great musician friends there and um we would I would just book gigs and we play like little places in the West Village um or south of Houston and it was coming up to one of those gigs and I was doing my mailing list and it was like I think it was July and I remember it's very hot I was sweating in my non-air conditioned apartment and I I used to make these you know go to Kinko's which was like the coffee place and make these kind of r- rough kind of postcards and mail again mail <laughs> real, <laughs> real mail yeah. And I had this big mailing list and I'd mail, get my labels and my stamps and I'd mail, you know, invites to gigs and stuff, flyers. And I got a phone call and I, I, I said, hello. And I, I remember I was trying to get this done and I was moving fast and I had the phone kind of stuck between my ear and my shoulder. Hello. And, and, and I hear this voice say, Holly, it's Reeves. I said, Oh, Reeves. I don't think I had talked to him for like four years. We had a great time riding together, but it had been some years since I'd seen him or talked to him. He said, yeah, I'm in the studio with Mark Platty. I said, oh, I didn't know those guys knew each other. Mark was an engineer, bass player, producer in New York who I had worked with on some commercials and who actually played bass and engineered on a couple tracks on my album, my first album. So I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, you didn't know you guys knew each other. And he said, yeah, we, we want you to do, we, we need like a TLC kind of thing. And I remember I was still like, I hadn't stopped. I'm still stamping, <laughs> stamping and labeling these postcards. And I've got the phone stuck between the ear and the shoulder. And I, and I sing, don't go chasing waterfalls. <laughs> rivers and the lakes that you're used to. And then I hear this voice from out of the blue say, could you do it once more with a little less vibrato, please? And I, was, and I was like, in my mind, my mind screamed, that was, 
that sounded like David Bowie. But I didn't want to stop and say anything. I, I just did what he asked. And I said, and so I sang it straight with no vibrato. And he said, oh, and, no. And then Reeves came back on the phone and he said, can you be at, can you be at Chung King in an hour? <laughs> I, said, I said, yeah, yeah. And then he's going to hang up. And I'm like, wait, 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 Reeves. He said, yeah. I said, was that David Bowie? He said, yep. I said, okay, I'll see you in an hour. <laughs> Amazing. God. And then, and then which DJ did you, did you say you were working? It's called uh, Chung King downtown in New York. Right. And this was um, on hours, wasn't it? Which was what, which was his yeah. kind of, not, it was his kind of change again for me. He did some drum and bass stuff in the 90s, didn't he? And then this is his kind of yeah. return to what he did in the, you know, writing kind of the classic pop kind of songs yeah. again. And that was kind of, okay, yeah. David's, David's going to change again. So then did yes, you, yeah. and that was 99. And obviously the following year was his famous kind of Glastonbury moment. So did you then sort of after working with him on that track, did you, did you keep in touch with each other? Um, not initially. I didn't, I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, it was actually kind of funny because when we were singing the, when, when I sang it, um, you know, he's very specific about it and he, and I, and that, you know, you've heard the song, right? So the chorus yes. is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Bona was. And when I sang it first, he goes, you know, it's a little too jazzy. He said, you're kind of going Monday, Tuesday, when he said, I want it really straight. I said, ah, okay. Monday, Tuesday. And I, I just loved how specific he was with that. And, um, and then, so when we finished the main body of the, of the singing, he left the room. He said, why don't you just do a few tracks of ad libs? And he left the room. So Mark and I did a few tracks and, you know, when you do those tracks, it's just like, you're just trying, you're just trying to open up your mind and your heart and, just create and let things come through. And most of them are shit, you know, but then <laughs> if you get one or two that are good, you could have a little signature of a song or gives you an idea to write another little thing, or you just want to be open and try things. And so, um, he came back in to listen. And as I said, most of it was not very good, but, um, there was a couple parts that I thought might, he might like. And, um, he said, and, but he's listening and he goes, ah, he goes, yeah, I don't, he goes, I actually don't know if it needs anymore. And I said, okay. I, I said, I think there might be one, one, one other bit coming up here. And, um, he goes, oh, okay. And then he's listening politely, you know, and I don't know what possessed me to tell him to keep listening. Like, as if I think back, like, it's like, what? I, I kind of ballsy, I suppose. And then it came to this little, to this little, little ad little oh, no, no, oh, no, 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 no. there's this is like this high little riff and oh and and he i see him starting to get twitchy and then it it played and he goes oh yes he goes yeah i like that i like that he goes okay good so he's like he's like thinking we're done and i said you know i think there might be one more little bit at the end he goes oh okay <laughs> and then it came to the very end and it's that little little figure that it ends on i don't know if you remember but it's like a it's just like a little rhythmic motif and he got to that part he goes oh yeah i like that 
So that's how they ended the that's how he ended the song. Amazing. And I was very glad because by that point I was sweating like I was like, what if he hates this? This is gonna Yes. He's never gonna talk yes. to me again. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, that that awkward silence awkward silence followed by um like, well, I'll just shall I just go now? Shall I just leave? Okay, yeah. I'll um I'll take that as a yes, I'll go then. Bye. Exactly. But um yeah. yeah. I mean do you But I that's mean, how it happened. So oh, what that, happened is oh sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say I just um you know because obviously you, you've you know you've worked with a lot of people, but in those situations, I was wondering how you cope with those moments of kind of being in a space. You thinking, oh my god, that's that's that person, that's David Bowie. It could you know it could be you know any, you know quite a lot of different people, but there are kind of certain people who have quite a cute you know thing, don't they, an aura about them. You I, know, just, I just wonder honestly, how you, you you dealt how you deal with those kind of moments where everyone you know engineers, other musicians, and david there as well just how you cope with that okay let's relax the vocal cord yeah you know honestly um i think one favor that was on my side was that i loved his work but i only knew what i had heard on the radio i loved you know china like those songs i mentioned china girl modern love let's dance like they were they were formative but if I, I wonder, and I wondered later as I got to know him and as I realized like how deep it went with him and the funny kind of crazy thing is that I learned that from, I learned about him from him, from working with him because he had not been playing the old songs when I joined the band. He was, uh, he started playing, he started going back to the old, to the deep catalog and the great classics that we know with that band. And so it'd be like, okay, you're learning this song and you're le- so I was learning all of his music and I'm like, oh my God, and changes and ashes to ashes and life on Mars. And, you know, all these songs that were so incredible, but that I didn't hear on American radio. And so I feel in a sense that I became more, um, sort of I suppose you could say starstruck the more I worked with him you know the more I understood the more I deeper I got into his music um and so I don't know maybe I would have just froze if I knew that before I had walked into that session yeah (laughs) yeah see it it probably it probably would have been yeah it would have probably been quite different if you knew that whole Ziggy Stardust that whole sort of Berlin thing and and other stuff and and some of the yes and and I suppose the body of work but then I mean when you become part of the touring band which then takes you up to Glastonbury so again what's that as an as a musician singer what's that like to suddenly find yourself because you you said earlier you really enjoy being in a band and you suddenly find yourself in a band which is like wow this is kind of like pretty amazing musicians I just wondered what it's like having to you know suddenly develop those kind of bonds relationships friendships and then sort of working together oh it was just it was it was magical you know and David David is a musician who's very interested in the details um I think that there are I I haven't worked with many um I know that there are great artists that the band will rehearse for some weeks and then the artist comes in and then they go from there and that's how they do it with David he's there from he's there every minute of rehearsal. He's there from, and he's there first, you know, um, he's involved in, in all of it because he's, he's interested. He's excited. It's his, it's his, it was his, um, 
his joy, I believe, to, to be there with the band. And so it was just a very creative, a very um, uh, collaborative group aesthetic. I think that he chose people for the energy that they brought um, along with, of course, the musicianship. Um, but he allowed you, he saw, I, th- I believe that he saw what people, what was special about someone yes. and then would, and then would, would, would make a space for them to bring that to the group. Yes. You know, it's like our vocals. If you listen to, um, like, let's see the, the VH1 storytellers, the vocal the background vocals are mixed really loud. You know, he didn't, if you, sometimes I've done something with other artisans, like the background vocals are kind of an afterthought, but it wasn't like that for him. He, we were there for a reason. And, um, you know, and I, you know, he, he asked me to play percussion, which was incredible. Um, you know, he just saw people and wanted them to do, to shine. And so, so it was an absolute joy and I'm, I'm still friends with everybody now and we've done their been some reunion stuff that's gone on which has been really fun yes and do you and sort of just at that sort of point where you know you do some dates but then you play Glastonbury can you remember much about that evening um I remember you know it's, it's funny um I the, the the thing that I remember the most which is so funny is um let me just see what his name was because I but so the, the the guy who wrote um, Buddha of Suburbia, Hanif Qureshi. Oh, yes. Wrote, he wrote on the bus with us um, to Glastonbury, which was I thought was really great and interesting and fun. Um, I remember I remember things around it. Being on stage is kind of a blur. Um, I remember the feeling of just this enormous the enormity of it all. Um yeah, because because the week before you played that London gig, don't you? And then there's this kind of thing that the BBC, right? The BBC, the which BBC. was kind of recorded, and that sounded amazing. Then David has the vocal yeah. problem, where it's like he might not be able to play Glastonbury because his voice has gone. But then he just mm-hmm. about manages. So that must have been a very strange time. So were you just all hanging out in London, thinking we've got this gig, but it might not happen? I don't remember. I don't remember it being real that it might not happen. It may have been, but I don't, I don't, I didn't perceive that as such. Yes. Um, because, uh, yeah, I just. The show was going to go on. Yeah. Yes. And, what, well, and that's, what, that's how I perceived it. It's hard to, it was, I guess it was hard for me to imagine that he wouldn't just make it happen, you know. Yeah. The doctors would have sorted his voice out because that was quite, I mean, were you aware of the Glastonbury Festival? Because in the UK, obviously, Glastonbury is like yeah. this, this thing mm-hmm. and, and and to sort of go out and I can't remember how many thousands, I mean, did they say 50, 80,000 people and on, on that sort of pyramid stage and it's a Sunday evening and I was there so I can remember it really well and it was kind of like an amazing mm-hmm. light and it was the summer solstice so it was very light in the evening and you go on mm-hmm. about 10 o'clock. I remember that. And mm-hmm. you go on about 10 o'clock until midnight. And the kind of the songs that you did, I mean, when you look back at that set list, does that, I mean, you must have felt really like these were probably the, some of the greatest pop songs that has ever been written, which must have felt amazing to be able to perform them at such an iconic event. Yeah, I I don't remember the set list, if you can believe that. I just, I I remember, I just remember the feeling I just remember this an enormously exciting, magical feeling. But 
I haven't gone back and watched it or 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 looked at the set list, and maybe I'm saving that for some moment. For some moment, I think the DVD yeah. the DVD came out either this Christmas past or the one before. So yeah, I've been. I get I get some some really nice emails and messages from people that uh, get excited about it and, yes. and want to share that with me, which is really really sweet. And I feel I probably should go check it out, but I don't know. It's so it's sort of complete in my mind. And maybe when I do finally watch it, I'll be like, why didn't I look at this sooner and show my son? I, I don't know. <laughs> and then, but then after you've done, you know, that, and then the turn of the decade and, and we go into, oh, millennium, in fact. Um, so you, you relocate to Los, LA and then, um, you, you know, you pick up your sort of solo career again, but also playing with other people. So so as a sort of a, the traveling musician and singer, how does that feel sort of being able to sort of dust yourself down and think, right, that was that. I'm now going to move on from into another chapter. Well, yes, I my so my label was not going to put out my second record. It just was a little too weird for them, I think. And um, it was before Madonna's music came out. Yes. And probably if if her record had came out, there might have been a little bit more understanding of what Tenderhooks was all about. Um, and I I had shopped it around and tried to get people to put it out, and the, the labels were saying we'd like to make a new record with you. And so I thought, well. I think I'll, I think I'll move out to Los Angeles and just get a change of scene because I was bummed. I wanted that record to come out. I really loved it. And, um, I mean, I, I would do it, you know, I'm, I'm never satisfied with my music, but I felt a lot for it. And I guess I felt for the, for the time and the energy and the ideas that went into it. And I, I would have liked it if the label had felt the same, but I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to start over or if I'm going to, it's time for me to make a new album, I suppose, was the thing. Things with David had slowed down. We did some sessions for Toy, which finally I think did come out. Um, and we did, and and Glastonbury too. No, what, the Net Aid also happened after that um, in 2000. That was later. But anyway, I just, it's time for a change of scene and new music. So I, I moved out and I never really, I never really felt like I had left being a solo artist. So it was sort of natural to just continue, you know? Yes. And at that time, shortly after that is when I met my friend Allie Willis. Do you know about Allie? She just passed away last year. I don't actually. So Allie's an incredible writer. She wrote um, Boogie Wonderland in September with Earth, Wind and Fire. Oh, yes. We love that one. Yeah. And she wrote like theme to friends, incredible songwriter. So I worked uh, quite a bit with her. She became sort of a songwriting mentor to me on what became my third album, which was called I Confess. And, and it was funny because I was about to uh, more label stuff. And then I signed, I did sign back up to Warner brothers after having left them new people there. They heard the new album. They come back. And I said, Okay, but if you don't put out my second record, then I and I end up leaving. I like to take that with me. They said no problem. So once again, I went and I made this album. I have like two mixes by Dr. Dre on there. Billy Preston plays on the cut. Um, it's a lot of um, my friend Prince from the Black Eyed Peas um, does some plays on there. My friend Kefis, who has this band Unloved, 
They've had a lot of their songs in um, that, that show Killing Eve. He's a prominent part of the production on I Confess. So again, I made this very somewhat adventurous, the most kind of pop album up to date of, of my albums, but still pretty eclectic, but, um, but with some really nice kind of deep beats in there, um, kind of borrowing some, borrowing some grit and some depth from some hip hop music that I had been listening to. And then once again, when I was <laughs> done with it, they were kind of like, Oh, this is interesting. Oh, we like the single, but we need to do it again. So they actually redid the single 10 times with different producers. And finally they came, I, I said, you know, that that original vocal, when I met, when I wrote the song, that's the vocal. And they said, okay, yeah, you're right. So they hired a producer to hire a band, including my friend, Abe Laboreal Jr., who you may have heard of. He's an incredible drummer. He's been with Paul McCartney for many years now. He's one of my friends who I had a band with back in Berkeley. But they, but we went in and and everybody played to the original vocal, and that became the single. And they just didn't get anywhere with the record, and so again, I left there. I left Warner Brothers <laughs> because they were again asking me for more singles, and I was like, you know, one of the songs which you didn't put on the record is now in a Jessica Alba movie. Like I've written so many. The album is full of singles, and so I'm going to have to excuse myself from this whole situation and go. So they let me take that record and the unreleased record, and I put them out myself on my own little label called Bombshell Records. And then I've just continued that way, making records and putting them out on my own. Yes, my God, that is. And sort of selling your own label, Bombshell Records, was that... um... Mm. I mean, did you have much help or advice about how you you start a record label? Or no, I mean, really, for me, um, you know, there's the there's the the joy and pain and um, nature of being a solo artist, but there's also the reality of needing to make a living. And so, I began doing more and more session work, just getting jobs singing on like film scores and commercials and stuff. And I, I, I basically started the label, trademarked the name, um, you know, pressed up my album, had a release party and made it available. Like I, I can't, I don't really function as a proper label because I don't have the resources, you know, no. to do that, do a video. And like, I do, the, I do the things to, to introduce the album to the world. And then I'd have to move on to making a living or writing new music. That's kind of what my life has been about you know it's moving between those um points on the cycle yes well it's it's extraordinary i mean it, it, i'm just because i didn't actually i did an interview with m who you sung with at um you know with david at glastonbury and i mean she's got a very prolific solo career as well and but you know also you know it's like a lot of similar stories of just like frustration and trying to put records out and not getting them released so so it's kind of quite a a common sort of story, you know, narrative, isn't it? The the kind of trying to sort of be an artist, releasing stuff, not getting it released, not getting people not quite getting what you're trying to do and then getting dropped and then trying to sort of own your own music again. So that, you must have such a lot of resilience. I suppose so. I mean, there's getting dropped and then there's also like 
saying, I don't want to play the game that you want to play with me right now. You, you know, you want me to keep reinventing the music on this album. And I, I choose not to do that because it was like, I was talking to a friend about it at the time. He goes, and he was like, do you think Picasso uh, repainted paintings? People didn't understand them. No, he just painted another painting. So, you know, knock it off. (laughs) (laughs) And and you, you know, know, you've you've always worked with so many amazing artists. I mean, what was it like working with um, Michael Bublé? Because obviously that's, that must have been quite a nice number, especially as it's... He it was the funniest person. He is just hilarious. I just didn't stop laughing when I worked with him. <laughs> I don't know if that comes through necessarily uh, in in what you know these days. I don't, I don't know that, but working with him was just like it was so much fun. And um, I, but you know that's also another thing where I um, it may seem sometimes things may seem easy, but I actually went to great lengths to. Um, to get that opportunity. They, I think initially I read the script early on. I think they wanted like David Bowie and Jewel. I think that's, I think it was something like that many months before it happened. And then it sort of came back around again. And I think my manager was saying, cause it was a Warner brothers movie. And I think the fa- soundtrack was on reprise or Warner's, which is basically the same people. And, um, and I remember my manager saying, you know, Holly, you know, Holly, Holly. And I wasn't, you know, um, I wouldn't say that I was necessarily a rising star at that moment. I was kind of an sort of a, a little bit of a um, work in progress, perhaps let's say. And finally she got them to agree to let me come with a piano player to the movie studio to sing it in a conference room with them. And I was like, yeah, hell yes I'll go do that yeah I'm a singer get 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 me the address (laughs) and so I went over there and um and I sang the song and it was so funny because Mark Shaman who's also a a dear friend since then he he a, a, a tree went down or something he was the he he was the um composer for the film and stuff and the arranger for the song and um a tree had gone down so he couldn't be there but he was there on speakerphone and then the producers were there. I think the director was there because it was for the opening title. Um, but um, yeah, so I brought in this piano player. I sang a Cole Porter song and at the end, nobody says anything. And then you hear Mark Shaman go, well, I'm gay, but I got a chubby. <laughs> <laughs> you know what a chubby is? I guess that's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and everybody just started cracking up, laughing, that's and I got a, the job. You got the job, which is amazing. <laughs> so, in you know, I mean, yeah, I'm always you know, I mean, it's um, I mean, with with all the music you do and and stuff, I mean, it's which is kind of amazing, you know, like stories and and sort of experiences, but does. I mean, how do you sort of keep a track of stuff and how, I mean, where do you think, oh, thank God I got paid now, so I'll be able to sort of afford to live for another six months. I mean, I just wondered how you managed to sort of navigate those kind of things, because obviously oh, yeah. that must be quite <laughs> something tricky, you know, because it yeah. must be like, oh, great, I've just I've just done that vocal for so-and-so. I just wonder if you go, oh, by the way, is it possible to get paid for that? I mean, how does it all kind of kind of work in the scheme of things? Well, you know, there's, I get called for such crazy, crazy kind of random things. Like I was called by, um, 
by Dr. Dre via my friend Mike Elizondo, who had played on my I Confess album. And this was when Dre had done a mix for me. He'd done two mixes for me. And we'd been together in a studio and we got on and stuff. And um, they, and Mike said, um, he's doing a version of this song, this Nancy Sinatra song. So I went over there and, um, and it was really cool. It was that, it was a song called um, Bang Bang. Yeah. which he didn't end up releasing because one of his newly signed artists had also at the same time, I think unbeknownst to him recorded that track. So it was a single, but um, we did this really cool version of like jazz guitar and me singing this Nancy Sinatra song. And then, then, then that Dre beat coming in and it was a great session. And afterwards Mike was like, how much do you want to get paid? And I was like, mm, I don't know, a thousand. He goes, yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> and that's what I got. You know, sometimes it's easy like that. And then sometimes your friend calls you and they don't have any money and you want to hang out with them and you love them. So you just go do it. You know, you just, it all, it all just depends on the situation. I don't, unless it's, I I get called to do things um, based on relationships that I have and based on the fact that I will try, I will try kind of anything. I'm really, I like to collaborate and I like to be directed And so there's that side of creative music where people call you to do things. And then there's also, um, you know, commercial work, which around 2005, um, there's a woman that I knew of in New York where, where I had used, where I used to live, um, who managed singers for commercials. And I had already been hired on a few commercials based on my artist music. And so I had a little bit of a track record. So she took me on and that is a relationship that still is going on for me today. And, um, as a matter of fact, that was, yeah. So that's been, wow, that's been 15 years. That's great because she, they get called by music houses. And so I record things from home, which is really great. And sometimes I'm asked to write them and thank God at this COVID time, um, I act well. Okay. So add into the mix, I have a child and I have a child with significant medical needs. So it's not only do I need to make sure I have enough money to help pay the bills, but I need to make enough union income through singing commercials or singing on TV or film scores that I earn enough to qualify for insurance year after year. Because we actually have in a nurse who's here six nights a week taking care of my son because he requires constant care. And so there's, there are layers to what you just said. Like, as far as our family's concerned, like you said a mouthful because I am constantly thinking about, all right, I just qualified. Okay, cool. I'm, I'm good for another year. And oddly enough, sometimes, I don't know, sometimes magic happens where about, let's see, I think it was 2014, a music house that I was introduced to by my manager, um, these, these great guys, they have a company called The Elements. They called me up and they said, we, we want like a Megan Trainer kind of thing. That's when she was having the all about that bass hit. And I said, cool, that's, that's great. Let's do it. And they said, now, can you actually do a track? And I said, yeah, I can do that with my producing partner, Roy. And Roy is a friend of mine. We make music together. It was more like creative stuff. We hadn't been, well, I guess we'd done a few little jobs here and there, but I just named him my producing partner and they said, okay, great. So they sent me the brief. We wrote the track. It was for Rice Krispies. I don't know if you know what Rice Krispies yeah, are. Yes, we love them. Right. 
Okay, so it's for Rice Krispie Treats. And they bought the song. And so we got a small fee for writing a song, but I got union income for singing the song. And then in, when Easter came, they wanted a version for Easter. So luckily, for, the, for three Christmas and Easter's in a row, they used that music. And that was great because that made sure that I had insurance for those years. And then kind of by hook or by crook, I got other jobs where I earned enough for that. And then last year, towards the end of the year, I was like, God, oh, no, last year, my husband used to do more commercial acting. So he actually qualified for a commercial that got used, although he hasn't. That was something he did years ago that got put on the air. And then it was coming up to the end of the year. And I was like, God, I don't know what I'm going to do for insurance. And then somehow I got booked. There's a new there's a Perry Mason um there's a reboot of this Perry Mason show. Have you ever heard of Perry Mason? It was a popular show in the 50s. Yes. No, it was a popular show in the 70s. 50s. It went for a long time. Yes. Anyway, yes. Anyway, they're doing a reboot of Perry Mason. So I was hired with a few other girls to be in the church choir of one of the main characters. It was on camera work. So thank God there was several days of work and some sessions. So that got me into insurance wow. for, another, for another year. But then... The calendar started again, January 1st. And I'm th doing what you said earlier a few minutes ago, like thinking, how am I going to make it work? And so I'm thinking to myself, okay, now it's January. I'm good for another nine months. What is going to happen here? And all of a sudden, I got a call from my manager and he said, hey, I got some good news. I said, what? He said, I don't know how much they're going to play it, but your Rice Krispie Treats is going on the air again. And they ran it for two weeks, and I just found out that I qualified for another year. <laughs> <laughs> God, that's wow! That, is, that makes you sort of just like the tension, isn't it? But <laughs> I hope uh, I didn't make you tense while I was telling you the story. But it's really kind of a well. Let's just say it's a thrill a minute around here. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So, what would you what do you say to an eighteen year old self, or what would you have said to yourself, you know, when you were? you know, starting out, if you could have just, you know, with the experience and, and all the ups and downs and, and interesting things that have happened. I just wondered if there was a few things you thought, oh, yes, that was that would have been just such a good thing to have known. Um, well, I think that there's two main things. And one is you need to be singing all the time, all the time. And that's something that I was doing, but I didn't realize that everybody else wasn't doing that. And I didn't realize that that was, I did that because I really loved it. But then I realized as time went on um, that that is really what creates a voice. And when I, I work with singers these days who are maybe just starting out, Sometimes a singer will take a voice lesson and think that that's enough to create a singer. But it's not. A voice lesson is really something to help refine and um, um, contribute to what you already have created in terms of your own voice. Like singing to records of singers that you love or videos or whatever you call them these days. Yes. Um, but singing is just really important. And also how people... 
you know, how people feel when they're around you, you know, it's not, um, it's really important to be, as they say, a good hang so that when you're working with people, you're, um, interested in what they're up to and interested in helping them and interested in, um, you know, share, you know, pooling your energies to make something more than what, what you'd create on your own or what they'd create on your own. You know, the people we know and the people that we, um, the people that we work with, that's really the gold in any life, whether it's music or any, anything else. It's, you know, an interest and, um, an interest and a, a caring and a willingness, um, to engage with other people and what they're doing and what they're all about. Yes, that's, that's, yes, that's a good one, actually. I never heard anyone say that before. That's, that's quite a, a good hang, a good hang. I mean, as you're, I mean, when you... I think it was kind of an accident. I was like, why did I get a kick with David Bowie? Like, what? Why did I get to do that? You know, and what, and I sort of look back and I used to think it was just like a little, like an accident. Like I snuck it, like somehow I fooled somebody and I got there, you know, or did it, not, not just with him, but other situations. Like, why did I, why did this happen? And I, I realized it's like, well, I got that call from my friend, Mark and Reeves. We always have such a good time together. We've done, we do cool stuff together. We do fun music together. We feel good around each other. And that's why they called me, I think. Yes. I think there are a lot of great singers out there, a lot of great singers, a lot of good, decent singers. And there may be some decent singers that are um, just great to be around and a great laugh and helpful. And those are the people that are going to get more chances, I think. Definitely, definitely. As you I mean, you know, because obviously, like with anything, you have to work at it all the time. Are you always training with your vocal as well? You know, I am because. I um I actually have been star I've been studying opera for the last couple of years. And the reason why I started studying opera was because I wanted to just get more skills in terms of uh being able to work as a singer and and do more and different types of sessions. And um I didn't think that I would actually do this when I started. I just wanted to learn more about my own voice to expand my skill set. Um, like working on my sight reading and um, working on just kind of, as I said, expanding my skill set. But as I was doing that, I was singing classical music and I really loved that process. And I said to my teacher one day, I said, this is, this is maybe crazy, but what do you think? I'm thinking maybe I should go get a master's degree, like go to graduate school. And she looked at me, she said, I think that's a great idea. And I just thought, you know, time's going to pass anyway. I'm enjoying my voice, you know, like I'm enjoy enjoying being a singer and the exploration of this and the very hard work of it. Um, it's sort of therapeutic for me in terms of some of the other everyday stresses that I have in my life, like making sure my son's okay and helping him grow. Sometimes I need to just take some time just for myself Um and so when I'm working on classical music, it becomes sort of a meditation. And so I thought, oh, maybe I, I'll just continue. This road feels right. I don't know what's at the end of it, but I'm going to try that. So I started graduate school, and I just finished my first year. So I've got another year, maybe year and a few months left. And that 
is the first part of the interview with Holly um, that we did. And then a few days, weeks later, we did the second part uh, where she was talking about her musical world as well as her relationship with the, her son. And um, I thought I'd put this in. It now does seem a little bit clunky, but it might just help kind of run the narrative over. So anyway, look, make notes. I will test you at the end. This is um, Holly talking about her other project. Holly, it's um, the ball is in your court. So we were, we were, we were, um, yes, the other couple of weeks ago, you were talking about, yes, your, your latest project. Yeah, I never, I realized we actually didn't speak about it, but, um, but uh, I, um, I have, I have a lot of uh, sort of feeling for it. So I realized it would be, yes, um, well, absolutely. it would be nice just to chat with you then. So, so Maceo, um, when Maceo, my son Maceo was born um, for no you know, known reason, he went without oxygen and had a brain injury. So the first two years of his life were really about like, how do we take care of this guy? And what's his life going to be like? And who is he? And how do I hold him? And he has a lot of physical um, and kind of medical, a lot of physical impairments, which the basic name for his uh, diagnosis is cerebral palsy, which basically means, you know, uh, motor impairment due to brain injury. And so um, we always have had a, a really good time and we always listen to a lot of music, but it's fairly arduous. Um, it was fairly arduous those first two years trying to figure out how to take care of him. And after about two years, um, I reconnected with my friend Pete Glenister, who lives in London. Um, do you know Pete? At no, all? not a t not a lot, but I've come across the name, but I think it's probably by, yes, reading about you actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he um, he's excellent, and he I guess Kirsty McCall. You probably know Kirsty oh, McCall. Oh yes, and Alison Moyer. Alison Moyer, yes. yeah, yeah, and also some other uh, great artists as well. But he he's a um, wonderful songwriter and a wonderful person, and we we are we are dear friends, and just had been out of touch for a, a few years. And he said, "What are you up to?" You know, and um, Macia was two at the time, and I said you know, I have this great kid, Maceo, who's taking us on this uh, wild adventure. <laughs> and, um, and I started telling him about, you know, our day, our, our, our day to day lives and what we do and all the music we listen to and um, the, the challenges we were um, attempting to overcome. And he said, you know, I really like to write songs about that. And I thought, really? <laughs> <laughs> He said, yeah, he said, there's, there's so much joy as you describe it. And he said, I don't think people would expect that um, if they, you know, were thinking about what you guys are kind of contending with. And he said, I think it would be great to write songs. I said, wow, okay, well, I I'd first thought that was like a really insane idea because I was like, well, no, I'm an artist over here and I'm a mother over here and these things are separate. But then I realized like, my life and my time was so um, um, oriented around taking care of this guy. And, the, you know, sometimes it would be like four therapies a day or medical appointments and things. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to make more music, it really should be something I'm dying to, to share, something that's really, you know, straight out of my heart. Otherwise, I have other things that I really must do. Yes, yeah, <laughs> And so 
So we started writing over Skype and I would send him, you know, melody ideas or, you know, chord progressions and things from the piano or he would send or just scraps of lyrics or finished poems and he would put them to music and send them back to me. We just started to work that way. And around that time, I got a call from someone um, to go on tour with Seal for five weeks in Europe in the summer. And um, and at first I was like, oh, I I I. I know I can't do this because I'm needed at home. And then I mentioned it to my husband. I said, you know, I, I probably can't do this, but I just want to mention to you that I did get this call. And he said, Oh, you absolutely should do that. And I said, really? I said, Don't you guys need me here? And he said, well, I mean, we need you, but we also will be okay. We'll be fine. And you should go and sing. And, and also it's a paycheck. And so with his blessing, I went out, and sang with Seal and um, across Europe. That was a beautiful tour. And Seal was wonderful and the band was just great. And I started writing out on the road. It was actually really nice to have that space to be writing in hotel rooms and um, walking around in Memphis, you know, with some idea that Pete and I were cooking up and being able to really just flesh those out in a really kind of serene and fun um environment yes absolutely and And did it feel strange because because probably for the first time for quite a few years you were you were sort of kind of more you know living as an almost a more of an independent person so did that sort of oh yeah did that kind of clear your mind quite a lot yeah it was a really it was a really beautiful kind of synchronicity that as I decided to try to create some new music I had an opportunity to actually yeah, kind of go off on my own for a bit and um, and do that and do that in a really open with all the the space and the freedom that kind of being a background singer on the road, you know, uh, gives you because my job was pretty simple, actually, you know, um, I was away from my family and I missed them and I worried about them, but I was able to focus on on dreaming up something new. And that was a real gift. Yes, absolutely. And it doesn't happen a lot. And it's in quite interesting as well, because with gender politics, often, you know, the, the father sort of can just go and do his thing, but the, you know, obviously yeah. the mother kind of doesn't. And then it's always a bit like, you know, no one ever says to the father, did that feel bad? You know, you went on the road for six months while you yeah. know, your wife was at home with the children. No one ever asked the man that, do they, at all, which is kind of... It's true. Yeah. It's really like it always makes me cringe because you're thinking, you know, it's, it's society still sort of so blinkered and, and biased, isn't it? But, it, it, yeah. you know, and I know because that was interesting. I've been, you know, I did an interview that was with Nils Lofgren when he was coming to Norwich a few years ago. And he said he, he can only be away for 20 days because he gets so homesick. And I was like, wow, yeah. but what happens when Bruce wants you on the road? I mean, you know, in the old, and it was a bit like, you know, I don't know how he juggles that, but he said, no, I just can't be away now. Oh, yes, and Toya Wilcox was telling me, um, she said that you know, she's with Robert Fripp, who's in King Crimson, mm-hmm. that um, mm-hmm. he, last year, you know, they were on tour, and he's always like in the hotel room going, right, I'm coming home. I can't cope. I'm just, I miss the family. And she would have to make him videos and send them and say, look, please, Robert, you're staying in the best hotels. You've got everything you need. You know, if you, you know, you just got to stick with the band. And he's like, no, I'm coming home. It's like, please stay. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you, you know, yeah, did you, yeah. how do you cope with those kind of, because it obviously affects everybody, doesn't it? That kind of, as we get older, the home becomes, yeah, so important, doesn't it? 
Yeah. You know, I, we just FaceTime a lot. And, um, and also my husband and I are both, you know, he's an artist as well. And so he's always kind of working on something. And, um, my son is, he's, he's an interesting, he's an interesting little dude because he's, he needs help with every aspect of daily living, but he's pretty self-possessed and not too bothered, um, in a way like he's, he's kind of an independent spirit, even though he's actually physically pretty dependent, but he, you don't, I don't worry about him, um, being, um, um, lost without me, you know, it's actually really funny. I came home from one work trip. I went to New York for a, a job. Um, this is a few years ago now. And Maceo is learning to communicate. He doesn't have a great system. Sometimes with nonverbal people like him, it can take many, many years to get a communication system going. So, and we're talking in the realm of, you know, how Stephen Hawking used eye gaze, you know, his eyes would be read by a screen. That's the kind of, those are the kind of systems that Maceo, um, is working with. And, um, for a long time, what we would do is we have an iPad with a communication app on it that had a key guard, which would help him make sure that he just went into the windows of the targets that he wanted. But the way that his body works, he couldn't, he can't get his, once his hand reaches the screen, his body is so tight, he can't just lift it off the way you and I can. So it's this whole sort of symphony of movements where I hold, he's in my lap, I hold the screen in front of him, he makes he connects to the word he wants. I pull the screen back. He drops his arm. I move the screen back forward, and then we do it all over again. So it's a very time-consuming process. Um, but now, and that's what we did for since he was two. We've been using a system like that. But in the last three or four years, he's been learning to use a thing called the head mouse, which is a little silver dot in between his eyebrows, which is read by the computer as the mouse on the screen. It's sort of an iPad size screen. And um, that's a very long runway because it's very difficult for him to control his head movements, but that's what he's working on. But when we had this one conversation, when I came home from a job, I said, he said um, something like, finally, you know, you're home. (laughs) It takes very long time for him to come up with these. And I'm thinking, oh my God. I was like, oh boy, he really, he is lost without me. Oh my God, what's he going to say? But I needed to know, like, why is he lost without me? Like, what is that experience like for him? So I yes. said, Maceo, I, I missed, I think he said, you know, finally you're home. I need you, I think is what he said. And I said, Maceo, I need you to, I'm, I'm so sorry that I had to be gone. Can you tell me what, can you tell me what, you know, why, why, why did you need me? And like, what, what was going on for you? Because I'm just trying to find out what, how he was feeling. And, and he went to his um, adjectives page and he said, boring, boring, boring. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Which it was, <laughs> which I thought was so, just so wonderful and so beautiful for so many reasons. Mostly that it wasn't life or death and that I keep things maybe a little more interesting for him than if I'm not around, you know. Yes, but it's such a lovely, <laughs> lovely thing to hear. That well, not hear, but yeah, yes, yeah. it's it's a nice one, isn't it? That relationship, yeah. it's really special yeah. and so unique. Yeah. You must feel quite. I mean, at times, kind of 
I don't know, honoured or blessed, you know, to have be yes. given this chance sometimes to yeah. to sort of, you know, develop a side of you which you'd never have thought about when you were probably younger. I do. I I do. It's profound. Um, I don't know what I was thinking about before Maceo came around. Everything kind of seems so pale, you know, in yeah. comparison. And yes. And it's, also, it's, and, it's, and, and, and sometimes, you know, the, you know, Things you, one used to get hung, hung up on suddenly become so irrelevant. You think, really? That's you know, I have not got time to be that hung up on something that's so trivial. Oh, absolutely! It's kind of that thing, like what people say as you get older. Um, I think, for particularly for women, you just you just don't give a shit as much about things. It's like you just can't be bothered with things that just really aren't that important. It sort of culls, you know, the, the things that you're going to put your attention on, and um, it's a kind of a, a version of that, I think. Yes. Know? So coming back to the album, when you were on the road with Seal and writing with Pete, what sort of period of time was that sort of over? Well, let's see. I think we started in about 2012, I'm going to say. And 2011. Actually, 2011. So in there, Maceo was two that summer. So that was, yeah, 2011 during the summer is when we were writing. And I put the record out on Pledge Music. I did it in, I think, 2017, um, I think is when, 2017 or 18. Um, but that was just a, like a short, that was just a, like a, we raised some money to kind of do some horn arrangements and to master. And then I put it out a year ago. January um, through, and I, I did that through, um, oh my God, um, Cobalt um, has a, it's a, like an indie label, uh, online digital release. And so I guess we finished in, we really finished the record in, well, we, we did the pledge thing, but then I worked on it a little bit more. So then we, um, I'm sorry to be so vague. But I th- I'd say it was a six or seven year process. Yes. And Pete is an interesting character, isn't he? Because like Hank Wangford, who's a sort of country and Western or country artist, he was also a GP. And Pete is Pete a doctor, isn't he? A fully yeah. Yeah. So, so that's quite, it's <laughs> quite, <laughs> quite interesting that, uh, yes, and Hank, Hank Wangford, I, I mean, you probably never heard of him, but I mean, it was quite interesting that he, he became the GP for people like Keith Richards and Graham Parsons. And um, yeah, and it was quite yeah. interesting because you know <laughs> there was some amount of you know they loved drugs basically that's the thing <laughs> so some of the conversations he was having but it was the sixties and seventies so you know it was a different era yeah. of um, cannabis really and stuff yeah. so but he was yeah, I, think, <laughs> I think for Pete he was like he was always playing in bands and writing songs and doing all this while he was in med school and then when he finished I think you know you do your sort of year of practice and he was like right well I'll just do this I kind of would like to do music I think but I'll just give it a year and see what happens and sure enough he he finished his year and he was like no I'm 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 a guitar player I'm a songwriter that's what I'm going to do so so that's what he did yes and then as yeah. you, and when you sort of was was bringing this out I mean you got a band together I mean did it feel because it's quite it's a it's a it's a very 
It's a big album, isn't it? You did a lot of work on this. I mean, it wasn't just your normal 10 tracks. You know, you did, it was 14 tracks and it deals with a lot of emotions. Yeah. So it was quite, yeah. you did go through the the ringer with this a lot. And also it must have been quite something yeah. to get to the end of it. Did it? Did you feel like you had a lot of stuff to work out? I didn't know. We were sort of taking it, you know, idea, you know, this idea comes and you don't question it. And this idea comes and we, 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 we would, you know, create these things. And when I had enough, we had sort of enough songs um, and I had the money and, and I, I would go to England and record with him. And he came over here a few times and we wrote with another friend of mine, Charlton Pettis. Um, the thing that was great about taking this six or seven years to do this is that there were new events and new under, new awareness and um, new realities that emerged. And so I was able to write about those and put them in the mix, you know, and a chapter about like, for instance, there were songs about some of the difficulties, like when, you know, marriage of parents of special needs kids, uh, the statistics are really um, not good in terms of how many marriages survive and how many don't. Um, and so it, because it's hard, it's hard on a couple and, you know, they're, times that were difficult. And I wrote about those times and I was like, yeah, but there's so many times that are beautiful. And also there are things that Joe brings to our little family that I don't have to offer. And in some ways it felt like, you know, we'd be lost without him. And so I wanted to write about that. And so I was like, oh, I want to write a song about what a great dad he is. And so we sat down and we wrote this song, Big Heart Papa, about, you know, what a great dad and what a great guy he is. And if I had written the record in, in, you know, for instance, those a couple years between when Macia was two and four, well, there was certainly joy there, but I didn't have that circumspect um, viewpoint. Mm. I wasn't able to really look and see, you know, the other side of the coin in, in various aspects of what we were up to. And so that was really nice. And, yes. you know, like how the, Things like I went to do a go do a session and I found myself putting on my high heel boots. And I was like, oh, wow, I haven't worn these in years. I must be feeling better. Wow. <laughs> yes. and, okay. And, and, you know. <laughs> and there are some sort of very heartfelt songs. The one which is titled A Life With You. I mean, mm. can you remember writing that particular track? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's an interesting one because I wrote that. I wrote the the verses were a poem that I wrote in 1999. And I remember I was just feeling like, am I ever going to have a family? Like, who are my people? Where are those? Where are my people? Where's my person? And so I wrote that. And when we were beginning to work on the album, I, I sent it over to Pete and he had this beautiful melody for it. And I was like, well, what does the chorus say? What is the point of all this? And I realized like, Oh, where are you now and where have you been? I'm looking everywhere for some kin. And I realized that I was, I didn't know that I was looking for my people. I thought I was just, I thought it was just like a little riff on vanity, you know, and who could ever, you know, I'm so self-absorbed young person, like who could ever live with this, you know? And then I realized like, no, there's a bigger question that was asked. And, and so with, I was able to figure that out with, with the benefit of time and hindsight and go like, Oh no, I'm looking for, I was looking for my family. Yes. And so that to be able to put that down and create that moment. And then to have that be kind of the like prelude to the whole album. Where's my family. And then the next question is like, the next song is family. The answer to that question is like, here, here they are, <laughs> you know? 
Fast forward in time. Yes. And then a track, which is the other one, I, I Dare You to Love Me. You know, what was the sort of the, the sort of the basis for that one? That was like that was like straight out of like a fight with Joe of like, you know what? I dare you to actually like give to me in this moment, man. Like, don't you see what I'm trying to do in that way that, you know, people are always right in, in fights, you know, it's just like I I I I need you to love me the way I need you to love me. You know, I dare you to do that. And then it just turned into this, like, we were imagining, like, you know, long, you know, gown with, like, jazzy singer up on a stage. And it became kind of this little jazzy altar universe and um, kind of took on a life of its own. And that was actually really fun because I couldn't figure out how the verses should go for that. I didn't know what, like, the chorus would just, like, fell out of me, those those words but I did not know what the verse should be. So um, I got together with my friend David Bearwell. Are you familiar with him? No, I'm not actually. If you Google him, you will be amazed. Um, he's an incredible songwriter. Um, you would know him from writing Tuesday Night Music Club with Sheryl Crow and that whole group oh, of people. Oh, yes, yes. And also Come What May in Moulin Rouge. Yes, we love that film. Oh, yeah, and that song is so incredible and many other incredible songs and I just thought you know he's such an incredible guy with words we're gonna I want to sit with him and you know transmit what the hell where I'm coming from on this and he was like it's nice when you tell me I love you now what you say is what you do and it was just it was just really fun to go down a road with him on this sentiment of I dare you yeah, and because yeah. when this when you were bringing this album out, you know we had the very sad passing of David, you know Bowie, and he just had released Black Star, which obviously there was a few songs, and especially one titled Lazarus, which seemed to be very autobiographical to the world of dying and and sort of yeah, well basically dying and and that final period. Did you? I mean, were you at all kind of aware or affected during that period of? of having worked with him and him being such an iconic artist or with it with it I just wonder if that was on your radar at all um god it all blurs together I I was shocked um at at his passing it just seemed like we were gonna have another chance to hang out and have a laugh together one day you know um I was but it just, I didn't know he was ill. Well, none of us did, really. Um, uh, I thought the music was so beautiful. Uh, it, it is so beautiful on Black Star. Um, I didn't, I, I didn't, I, I, I'm getting confused right now as I'm thinking about the dates. Um, yes. I hadn't, my record hadn't come out yet when he passed. Yeah, because um, actually that was 2016, because it was just after his birthday. And, uh, that was yeah. quite, that was quite a momentous. I just sort of realised when you mentioned your dates that your your album would have sort of come out. Sort of, I know yours was about your family, but you know, at the same time, things happen, don't they? When you're when you're in the creative process, that you sometimes can't. Yeah. Avoid. And I just wanted, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and when you've met somebody and worked with them, and and obviously you've done some, you know, bits and pieces, and the, the fantastic story of when you sort of uh, worked on um, Thursday. Oh, it's Tuesday's Child, wasn't it? And, yeah, and, and, and sort of Thursday's Child. Nearly got my days wrong. I did. Um, <laughs> yes, it was just it was just kind of interesting that I always find myself, even if I didn't really know the person, but perhaps like their work, it's like, my God, they're not here anymore. And just wondered if that slightly 
had any sort of influence on on any of the tracks that came out? Um, I have to think about that. I, not that I recall. Other than just feeling, um, you know, how much David meant to the whole world, because I knew what he meant to me, and I knew what he meant to my bandmates, and I, I know that the general feeling was that he's his work is so wonderful and he was so wonderful, but to feel the outpouring of expression and loss and the different experiences that others had with him. Like I remember there's a story about a woman, um, you know, sharing a cab with him. I think she, either she was trying to get the cab or he was trying to get the cab and one of them let the other one ride. And then as he got out, she realized that it was David Bowie, you know, and he <laughs> sort of winked at her and got out of the cab. Like, uh, just that feeling of of connection, you know, with with the planet having lost this guy, um, in a in a way, Maceo brought me a similar feeling of connection that I didn't have before he came along. You know, when you're responsible for another human being and realize that everywhere you go, everyone has problems and everyone has impossible situations that they're dealing with. Like he, I think I became a, a whole person through Maceo. And so my, my awareness and just in terms of like what's happening with the rest of the world, I was much more tuned in than I had been before I became a mother. And so I suppose that when David passed, I felt I felt everyone's pain and understood it much more than I think I would have if I hadn't if I hadn't known my son and and gotten to you know connect in the way that he made it possible for me to as a human being on this on this crazy round planet earth you know yes well absolutely and and I think also is that thing that you you can't, you know, when you're 18, you often don't have a family and you don't have to have that feeling of protecting or looking after someone else or putting your own emotions to one side yeah, until you deal with true. something, you know. So that's quite, so you, true. it's it's so different, you know, that every, you, you know, so people start to depend on you or even animals start to depend on you and you think, and it's a nice feeling as well. It's not a bad feeling. It is a nice feeling. Oh, it's, it's a, it's the best feeling. I mean, what, you know, it's like, it's, it's so nice to look out and be like, Oh, this person needs some help. I can walk over there and give, you know, hand this person what they need or ask them what I can do to be of service. That's the thing also about people that are disabled, you know, they're not usually asked to be of service and you realize what a gift that is to actually be able to, to help another person. And, um, that that's major. And that's something I just didn't have in my background. You know, it's like being an artist and being a solo artist. And it's just like, like you asked, did you ever want to be part of a band? I think I always wanted to be part of a band, but I don't, I, for whatever reason, I didn't realize, I didn't realize the, the joy and the gift of, of connection in that way. It was just kind of always like looking after my own artistic interests, really, you know, and that's lonely. Who, who needs that? No, it's all about like what you do and make and experience with other people. Yes, absolutely. And when the album came out, it got very well reviewed and got, you know, highly rated. So you must have been incredibly pleased with that work. Yeah, I was. It felt, um, I mean, it it felt good to come to the end because it had been an awful long time that we'd been working on it. Um, I always feel like I can do things better, you know. <laughs> I always want to re-sing it. 
even though like usually the first or second take has all the, has all the, uh, the soul in it, you know, but, um, it was nice to come to the end. It was nice to get those, um, to get those really nice reviews and, um, and then nice to also leave it and move on and see what the next thing might be. But I did, I, I appreciated having the music, um, having the opportunity to write about my experiences also because I've never heard of another album that actually um, is about the unexpected joy that that lives and that uh, blooms in families like ours. And so I, I hoped and I hope that for families kind of starting out on this unexpected um, uh, path of living with and loving someone who's disabled, that maybe that could be some, I don't know, provide some solace or some light or some um, some, some relief to know that, you know, your life is not over when it feels like you're in an impossible situation like this. Yes. And it's interesting because I, I'm guessing a lot of artists must have that feeling of when they go to what, write the next piece of work, realizing they can't have that kind of mind that, or, or sort of even being that genuine about writing about, you know, the, those kind of 18 year old or 20 year old or, Subjects that you know, just about sort of going out and trying to have a date or trying to have a romance, and you think, yeah. well, I've done that, you know. So it's like, what do you yeah. sing? I guess it's it must be very yeah. difficult for an artist to think, what do I sing about next, which is going to be genuine and in real life. And I suppose you know that David Bowie album, yeah. Black, Black Star, was kind of like, oh my god, yes, of course, you're not going to be going. I mean, you know, I'm going, yeah. I'm going There's to the nothing co- else to write about. No, that's right, and that's why when you do an album, you know, which is so genuine and so truthful, it is, it is quite extraordinary because it does go straight to the heart and, and, and soul really. So I think that's, you know, but it's, it might also make it easier to keep focused on what you're doing as well, rather than think, Oh my God, I've got a blank piece of paper and I've got a new album to write, but what do I put my focus on? Yeah. It just kind of makes you realize like, I, you know, what else is there other than what's happening in your, in your heart? And I don't mean in your heart, like, what do I need and what do I want? But what am I, what am I feeling? What's happening around me? What do I, you know, um, what's real to me? What's my truth? And, um, I think that sometimes, um, speaking for myself anyway, I feel like my, my previous albums had been, um, a kind of art projects in a way you know, something aesthetic or something stylish or something, you know, um, involved in or wrapped up in, um, you know, style, style and, and, and concept and, um, not so much heart, you know, it's different. And when those two things get together, that's, that's what we all are striving for. Right. But I feel like, um, it was nice to just go, no, the, the barometer and the, um, the measure of, am I going to write this or not is, do I feel it? Yes. And does that, you know, with this current situation, I mean, is it a period that you feel that, you know, you've got the space at the moment to, to sort of create, or is it sort of the case that is actually just too, <laughs> it's too discombobulating. It's like, oh God, I can't, can't sort of seem to get my focus at all. Well, um, it's interesting. I, I'm not writing a ton. I'll write for certain projects. Like if I I get hired to write something or if I get a, a, um, 
a brief if somebody's looking for something for a film. I, I feel like I, through writing this album, I have a, a little channel that I can tune into to write from my heart for something else. Like I can um, understand what, what is needed and find something in my experience to write about it. But I'm not writing every day. I'm really focusing on developing my um, my classical voice and my classical studies and music history and just kind of, I think I was telling you, kind of broadening my toolbox as a musician and as a creator. And I'm looking forward to what I, I don't, I'm looking forward to finding out what I'm going to write about next and what, you know, where, where those um, creative um, juices are going to flow to and from. I don't know yet. And it's kind of nice to not need to know right now and just to kind of have these musical experiences and educational experiences and see what um, what it is that I need to say at the end of it all, you know. Yes. And what is the kind of general vibe in the, in the neighbourhood? And, you know, because in this, you know, in the UK at the moment, there is this sort of, it's it's got very messy recently. Um, in the last yeah. twenty twenty four hours, everyone's getting very oh. confused about stuff. Um, about really, the, what's uh, happening? Well, it was to do with the fact that uh, the great Boris Johnson's kind of right hand man, Dominic Cummins, decided that you know about a month ago that he wasn't that he you know because everyone had been told about the lockdown, so they said, look, we've got to do the lockdown, stay at home, not do anything. It turns out that his right hand man had sort of driven. T- 300 miles up north to visit family which was like the thing that everyone was being told not to do and and so yesterday Boris had the big chat to say you know announcement and everyone thought he was going to say we've we've had to sort of part company with Dominic but he didn't he stood by him and then today Dominic Cummins kind of was going to meet the press to try and put the story to bed and um and instead hasn't put the story to bed because he didn't apologize he just said well i i had to do it because you know i've got you know reasons while the rest of the see what's happened is that a lot of people have obeyed the lockdown and you know they haven't gone to visit family they haven't you know they've had family members die they can't go to funerals because you're going to have six people at the funeral so it's all very Mm -hmm. serious and then the government you know has seems to be doing what they've told people not to do and so it's really annoyed people it's like well why should we listen to you if you're not going to actually tell us what to do and then not do it yourself so the country at the the moment is very very tense about it a bit a bit like watching Donald Trump playing golf at the moment isn't it and just looking quite, quite casual so I just wonder what the state is with you know yeah america whether it's kind of because it it, because it feels like we've got a bit of fatigue starting to creep in people are getting a bit fed up it's true it's true and it's very it's very uh, kind of mystifying and disheartening for me to see pictures of people gathering on memorial day today's memorial day it's a traditional day where you get together with lots of people and do lots of summertime sort of the beginning of summer over here and you're seeing pictures of people with no masks in huge groups. And I'm just like, God, please, in two weeks, please do not be a surge. But it's hard to imagine that there's not going to be one yeah. just because of how this thing works. So what we know about, there's a lot we don't know about it, but the people that I know are staying home. They're just like, we're just going to stay home. <laughs> we're just going to, you know, uh, <laughs> lock it down, stay home, wait for this to pass. I mean, but there are, 
I don't think it's, I think more people are being conservative about it over here and staying home. But the people that are getting, the, the people that are not doing that, which I do believe is a relatively small number, are getting a lot of press. Oh, and yes. it's, it's, it's frightening for the, for the rest of us. And I just want everybody to be okay. You know, wearing a mask is not a political, should not be a political statement or a political maneuver. You know, so I wish that the people in, you know, running our country were all wearing masks so that everyone could just understand, like, it's, it's, it's to protect the other guy across from you, please. Yes. And that is the last part of my interview with Holly Palmer. A huge thank you for giving me the time for that interview or interviews. Uh, this has been David East of the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do at C86 Show. And also, these have all been archived. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do at C86 Show. It's all there and much, much more. But anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>